please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17 tonight, we'll be looking at the first 19 verses of that chapter. We are privileged tonight to come under the instruction of God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, then forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And he replied, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it will obey you. And suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink? Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he came back praising God in a loud voice, And he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. And Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. So far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ and dear friends, I hope you'll remember what we saw Jesus doing at the beginning of chapter 16. You remember the beginning of chapter 16 came right after he had told the parable of the prodigal son, the parable where we learned how hopelessly lost we were in our sinful condition, but how Jesus joyfully pursued us and saved us and is going to bring us to the heavenly feast at the end of time and will fully satisfy us completely in the glorification. And we have to look forward to that. And at the beginning of chapter 16, he turned to his disciples 
to describe to them how they ought to live in light of the fact that they were going to be glorified. You remember he told the story of the unjust manager. And what did we figure out about him? Well, we saw very clearly that he knew for certain what his end was. He was going to get fired. So he arranged his life in the best, most consistent way possible with the end that he was facing. And Jesus was calling us as his disciples who have been saved by his grace to do the same thing, to take stock of the fact, to know that we are going to be in the glorification and therefore to order our lives in the best way possible that is most consistent with knowing that we're going to glory. And we ask the question, well, what is it, Jesus, exactly that you want me to do? What is it to be the most consistent with the glorification that is coming? And Jesus pointed away from the disciples, really, and pointed at the Pharisees and said, now, the way you figure out what you're supposed to do is to look at them and not be like them. And there was a couple of ways in which he challenged us to recognize what the Pharisees were like and to not be like them. The first was, he told us, don't love your money. In chapter 16, verse 13 at the end, he said, you cannot serve both God and money. And the Pharisees were the ones, in verse 14, who loved money. And Jesus said, you know you are going to the glorification when you will be fully satisfied with everything that your heart could ever want. You will be uh, completely fulfilled... And therefore, you need to be understanding about how to use your money in this life. In fact, what? You will have brothers and sisters at that time in the glorification who are needy right now in your life, and therefore you ought to give generously to support the basic needs of those in the household of faith. You saw this in verse 9. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings with them or by them. You saw him in verses 11 and 12 saying, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches? It's just the character of Jesus' disciples, isn't it? That we don't love our money and we don't cling to it, but knowing that we will be in the glorification and that we cannot take anything in this life into the grave and that he will provide for us all along until he fully satisfies us. And of course, we're not going to love our money. We're going to use it for the expansion of the kingdom to see that others of our brothers and sisters will be brought into the glorification. We're going to give money to relieve their earthly distresses. That is what we ought to do, unlike the Pharisees, to hoard their wealth and to take advantage of those uh, who have less than they do. And there was another way. Jesus said, look at the Pharisees and don't be like that. He said, don't understand that God accepts you because of your status as a wealthy or a healthy individual in society. I don't want you to deduce from the fact that you have money and that things are going well and you have a comfortable lifestyle that necessarily God accepts you. This was the problem with the Pharisees and we can even fall into this today. Whether we have a comfortable life or whether or not we are suffering. Some people when they are suffering would think that God must not accept them and He doesn't love them. Because look, I'm struggling along in this life and Jesus says no. The way that you know that you are accepted by God is you look to His law. And in our case, we see that Jesus has fulfilled all of the law's demands for us, and so we will be rewarded as if we had done it ourselves. And we will be glorified someday. I don't care what we face in this life. And for those who are rich, who would be tricked into thinking that God must accept them because look at all of the magnificent earthly blessings that they have, Jesus preached a lot of the Pharisees and says, look at your shortcomings and don't think... Look at your sins, look at your violations, and don't think that you will stand before me because you are blessed 
in an earthly way now. So Jesus was speaking to the disciples by raising up a negative example of the Pharisees. And Jesus continues in chapter 17 to point to other people so that the disciples will be able to see how they are acting and then conform their thoughts and their actions in a way that is most consistent with the glorification, no matter what the other people are doing. And actually, of course, he continues to point out some of the sins of the Pharisees at the beginning of chapter 17. But there is an unmistakable shift in the part of life that Jesus is instructing His disciples to consider. I mean, if you think about money and all of us being challenged, whether we are comfortable or whether we are struggling financially, all of us being challenged not to love our money and being challenged to give generously for the advancement of the kingdom and for the help of others. And not to be seduced by the idea that if things are going well, then God accepts us, and if they're not, then God rejects us. All of us as Christians could be challenged by that, you would say, right? That's very real for all of us in day-to-day life. That is a broad message to all of those who claim to be followers of Christ. But there's an unmistakable shift at the beginning of chapter 17 where Jesus begins to address a specific part of life that is not common to every disciple or every follower of Jesus. And in fact, I can tell you that his instructions in chapter 17, although he's raising up certain people for an example that we can all see, do not directly apply to every person who is a follower of Christ. He actually is narrowing in to address a specific part of the life of some of Jesus' disciples. What are we talking about? Well, what did you think of when you heard those opening verses? Things that cause people, Jesus said in verse 1 there, to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. Better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone than to cause one of these little ones to sin. And then in the following verses, 3 and 4, your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, seven times he comes back, so I repent, forgive him. What did you think of when you heard that? Well, maybe, maybe you were thinking about specific instructions that Jesus had given in particular to his disciples, the apostles, who would become the officers of the church of Christ. Maybe you were thinking about, this is the kind of language that he uses when he begins to instruct the disciples that after he leaves, he will establish his church and they will carry out his authority into the world as the officers of his church, charged to the care of those who are following Christ and charged to preach His gospel and His power to the lost world so that His elect will be gathered in. Charged to guard the doctrine and the life of people who profess to follow Christ, not being harsh with them, but rather being gentle to them, although being firm, and welcoming them when they repent. Maybe you were thinking about Matthew chapter 16, 
when Jesus said to Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And what did he say to Peter? He said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you, Peter, bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And here Jesus is saying, there is an invisible spiritual work that I do in the hearts of people. You see, I come into people's lives and I convict them of their sins and I relieve them with the message of my life and my death. And you are being given the task, Peter, of going out into the world with the apostles and applying that message and proclaiming the power of it. And as you are appointing elders out into towns and planting churches, those elders will hear the testimony of people who say, I confess my sin and I receive the grace of Christ. And those elders will receive people into the church. And when those elders go astray, remember, a couple of chapters later in Matthew, when those professors, excuse me, those people who come to follow Jesus will go astray in their doctrine or in their life. Christ makes provision for the keeping of them in the kingdom, right? In Matthew 18, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others so that every matter may be established. But if he refuses to listen to them, what should you do, Peter? Or what should you do, disciples? Tell it to the church. What should you tell people to do? When we have a situation that a person is found going astray, one of these people who has professed to be a follower of Christ, will you pursue them? And ultimately, you tell it to the church. Why? So that the church may stand with the authority of Christ and call the person to repentance from their sins so that hopefully they will be received. But on the other hand, if they're not penitent when they refuse the voice of Christ through the apostles and as time has gone on, and even today, through the appointed officers of the church, the pastors and elders, exercising the same power and ministry of Christ, the same binding and loosing of people's sins, the same opening and closing of the very gates of heaven themselves in people's lives. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, treat him as you would a pagan and a tax collector. I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask for, it would be done by my Father in heaven. Jesus is saying, listen, there's a close correspondence between the work of you, the apostles, receiving someone into the church in the first place, or excommunicating them out of the church. There's a close correspondence between that and the actual gates of heaven opening or closing for that individual. What's bound on earth will be bound in heaven. It is Christ exercising His power in the church through the officers of the church. And in Luke 17, you have very clear references to the ministry of the officers of the church no matter what time in church history. We're talking about whether it be the apostles, the disciples, in the very early form of church planting when they are going about, even while Jesus is around, exercising His power and preaching His gospel and pronouncing forgiveness on people, or whether or not it's many years later, even tonight, when the appointed officers of the church 
have been given the authority of Christ in the world to pronounce forgiveness, to shepherd the sheep, to guard the flock, to welcome them in, to open the gates of heaven, to close the gates of heaven to those who will not repent. And Jesus is coming and saying then, not really to all of His disciples, but specifically to those who will hold the keys of the kingdom of heaven by Christ's appointment. He is coming to them and giving them particular instruction about how they ought to align their lives, how they ought to view the exercise of their office, knowing that the glorification is where they are going. Look at verse 1 of chapter 17. So when Jesus is saying to His disciples, He's speaking specifically to them as ones who will be officers in His kingdom. He says, things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for Him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around His neck than for Him to cause one of these little ones to sin. That's translated little ones. It's good because it's ambiguous. It could mean a little child, but more likely here it means anybody who comes into contact with the ministry of Christ, the preaching of Christ, the Christian church. And Jesus sounds out to the officers of His church and says to them, you better watch out, pastors and elders and potential pastors and elders, you better watch out that you are not harsh that you are not unloving, that you are not proud, that you are not impatient, that you are not legalistic, that you are not unfair with the sheep which Christ has entrusted to your care. It would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea than to cause one of Christ's sheep to stumble because of your offense. You are to act like an under-shepherd, like the good shepherd who has pursued and saved you and is bringing you into the glorification. And He has never been harsh with you. He has never been anything but compassionate with you. He has never been proud He has not treated you when you were weak and difficult and rebellious with hatred and vengeance, but He has pursued you and He has been compassionate toward you. And Jesus says to His officers, this is how we must be with those who come into contact with the power and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 3 and 4. He also gives a shortened form here of an official pattern of discipline that's laid out for us further in Matthew 18, which we reference, and which the apostles uh, clearly are applying throughout the New Testament letters. Uh, but the main point of this section of how the officers of the Christian church ought to approach those who have sinned and those who are seeking forgiveness is what? It's obvious. The point is that you have to be forgiving. That if you're mindful of your position in the glorification, then obviously you will see that the only reason that you have that glorious inheritance ahead of you is because the Lord has been willing to forgive you for all of your sins in the past and even puts up with your frailties day by day. And so then how 
could you ever have any other sort of disposition toward anyone who comes into the contact of Christ's ministry through you except to be excessively forgiving when people will confess their sin and repent. And remember, you have in your mind that Jesus is speaking here, contrasting the ethic for his church officers with that of the Pharisees, who were the most harsh and the most unloving and the most proud and the most impatient and the most unwilling to deal with the weak and difficult people. And even when people would uh, so-called make strides to please them, they were unwilling to forgive people for offending them. If you violated the terms of the inner circle, you were easily put out. They would make the ones who were the outcasts in the society feel and know that they were the outcasts and put them in their place. And all of this is being contrasted with how the officers of Christ's church ought to conduct themselves in the course of fulfilling their office. And the church officers that Jesus is speaking to, these apostles, are very likely sensing what all the church officers and potential office bearers of Christ's church are sensing after Jesus gives them this very strong instruction. And that is, well, that is very convicting. And that's very difficult, Jesus And that is why they respond in verse 5, Lord, increase our faith. I mean, in a strange way, they might be looking around and looking at the Pharisees and thinking, well, are they really that bad? I mean, it's it's true that they have uh, a certain degree of arrogance, but Jesus, think about the people that they have to deal with. And I mean, it is true, isn't it, Jesus, that, I mean some of the people that they refuse to keep company with and they will never even consider offering help to are some pretty dirty people. I mean, they're not just the typical tax collectors and sinners, but you're talking about the really uh, dirty, marginalized prostitutes and uh, public sinners who are now showing some sort of of penitence, and you can kind of understand how it would be dif- difficult, Jesus, to actually deal with these people. I mean, it, it's probably hard to be a Pharisee. And, you know, beside that, I, just like anybody else, Jesus, I just want to be happy and comfortable in my life. I mean, if you're really telling me that I'm called into church office and what that means is that I have to go beyond a lot of normal constraints and give of myself in ways that are completely emotionally exhausting and I have to pursue people that are weak and difficult and frankly will never thank you for anything that you do and nine times out of ten will refuse all of your admonitions anyway and as you pursue them, all of the time and the prayer that you have spent for them on your knees, all of the sacrifices that you have made, all of the money that we give financially to support people who are struggling or to send out the gospel into other places and these people come flooding in and they show flashes of being good Christians and be saved and then they all fall away and Jesus, look, I I mean, it's hard. I just want to be comfortable and happy. And if I am called to get myself involved with these people and to not grow impatient and to keep the course, I don't know if I can handle it. And this is why they plead with Jesus, increase our faith. 
And I don't even think that at this point, increase our faith, the disciples, the apostles, are being very precise about what they're asking for. They're just saying, Jesus, what you are asking us to do, and as those of you who have served on a consistory in this or another church, and those of you who will one day be called to the office, and maybe as a deacon you have had some insight into some of the work that the elders do, and maybe you see people of God, the toll that the ministry takes on your elders and your pastors when they are being obedient and actually doing what they are called to do, you understand the helplessness that they may feel. Increase our faith, Lord. Look, I'm stubborn and proud too. I don't want to deal with this. I mean, just to be honest here, I'm tired of it. Jesus, I recognize that what you are calling us to do is not done by the Pharisees, and I don't know that we're up to the task. Increase our faith, Lord. And Jesus, even though I don't think they knew entirely what they were asking, says something very significant to them. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it will obey you. And what Jesus is doing with that statement is taking their minds directly back to the gospel. And he is saying to them that if you believe the law and you believe the gospel, that is where the power is that you will draw on to do remarkable things. Faith as small as a mustard seed. What is true faith? We heard about it this morning. If I have a knowledge and a conviction that I am part of the fallen human race and that I am sinful and hopelessly lost like the sheep, like the coin, like the prodigal son, even self-righteous like the older son, and yet Jesus has pursued me with His life and His blood at great humiliation, great cost to Himself. If I really believe that and take hold of that, then the power of God will be at work within me. Because who am I? And my life is not my own. And I am rejoicing because I am going home to the Father. I was lost, but now I'm found. And my only comfort in life and in death is that I belong to Him. And what else could I do then than to give myself humbly and faithfully and self-sacrificingly to those who need the same grace and mercy that Jesus gave me. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, if you believe the law and the gospel, if you really believe it, officers of the church, then you will find the strength to be kind and loving and receiving and forgiving and gentle and patient and encouraging with those whom Jesus has entrusted to your ministry. You see, there's power in the Gospel. So much power that it could raise a tree out and throw it into the sea. Something that is absolutely impossible for us to be selfless for us to actually go the extra mile and to set aside our own desires 
And even I think you could apply this more broadly to the things that Jesus was talking about earlier, to all of his disciples. Where does the power come from to resist materialism and to actually believe, to say, the glorification is coming and I will commit my resources generously to the kingdom of God and to those who have need in the household of faith? Where does the power come even more broadly to do anything, to resist any temptation that is so strong against us in this life? The power comes from the conviction that we were lost, but now we are found, and that our end is the glorification. True faith will do remarkable things in the life of a Christian. If we really believe the law and the gospel in this church, then we will see things like mulberry trees being uprooted and thrown into the sea, not physically, but spiritually. If the officers of this church believe the law and the gospel really for themselves, that we were lost and now we are found, then we will see the hand of mercy, Christ's hand of mercy, being extended through us to the lost. Sending out that message with urgency and with kindness and gentleness and the discipline of the church being consistent and faithful and winning. And if we as the people of God really believe the law and the gospel and know that we're going to the glorification, we will have the resources to do more than even what we can think of in terms of our ministry and the extension of our ministry, not just in this local church, but through our church plants and through support and leadership, even in our own federation, in proclaiming the truth of God at the ends of the earth. He returns to speak to the church officers. He continues on, in fact. Suppose one of you, verse 7, had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. And we already read the story. We won't read it again. You also, verse 10, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. Speaking here to the church officers especially, Jesus says, don't think of yourself in your office as someone who is better than the ones that you are called to serve. Because you are a servant appointed by Christ to serve Him and His people. And I don't want you to think that you, having been saved by His grace and put into office, are doing Him a favor by serving Him there. Okay? I mean, our attitude as officers of the church should be what? It should be, we are unworthy servants and we have only done our duty. It's not to glorify ourselves. And potential officers of the church, you should know this. This is one of the things that the consistory would look for that Christ looks for and those whom He would appoint to office. That it's not lobbied after like it's some position of power and prestige. And for pastors to think today in this superstar culture that they're something. Well, they're not. They should view themselves as the unworthy servants we are. We have only done our duty. That's what you should be hearing from the pastors and the elders and the deacons as you see them faithfully discharging their duties and not having the attitude that they should be exalted and glorified themselves.
in contrast to the Pharisees who are always pointing to themselves and what they can gain and how they can hold it over God's people. That's just not consistent with the glorification, knowing that we're going there by the grace of God in Christ, is it? Verses 11 through 19 have troubled commentators because there's a bit of an awkward transition to a clear break in Jesus' teaching that begins at verse 20 when he talks about the coming of the kingdom. It's been difficult to figure out whether verses 11 through 19 fit into the section before or whether or not it's a separate story in there for its own reasons or fit with the teaching that comes afterward. And we're going to be of the conviction that this is a story that concludes the section of Jesus' teaching to His disciples, at least here. Jesus is traveling along the border between Samaria and Galilee, going to a village. He meets these lepers and He heals them, basically, and finds that only one of them at the end comes and gives Him gratitude for that salvation. And Jesus asks a very cutting question in verse 70. Were not all the ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Why is this story recorded at the end of this section? Because what we've heard throughout this section is a call to gratitude, isn't it? I mean, if you're a lost sheep and you acknowledge that, and you acknowledge that Jesus has saved you, and that He's taking you to the glorification, and that He did it joyfully, and He will never lose you, then we can sit in the benches, and I can stand in front of the benches, and make all kinds of excuses why we would not desire to show the gratitude that is fitting with our path onto the glorification by the right belief and use of our money, the right understanding of how we've been received by Christ, the right and proper treatment of the poor among us, the right and proper outreach to those who are lost, the right and proper and humble exercise of our office as officers in the church. I can make all kinds of excuses. I could talk all day and be in church every Sunday about the faith that I follow. and just close my heart when I hear Christ calling me to conform myself with the glorification. And Jesus says, I, in this story, I do not want you to be a phony like that. I don't want you to be a phony. Someone who comes to me and is quick to at least outwardly receive what will help me and then have no effect in your life to live completely inconsistently with the profession that you make. 
like the nine who went away healed but did not return to give praise to God, except of all people, a Samaritan. Jesus calls us to follow him, to reject the ungodly pride and arrogance and love of money of the Pharisees, and as all of his people, and particularly as officers of his church, to serve him faithfully and self-sacrificingly to his glory, that is fitting for us and our joy and privilege, isn't it? Belonging to his kingdom. And to that, all God's people said, Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, increase our faith. For we know that these callings are too high and lofty for us in and of ourselves. Help us to really meditate on who we are by nature and where we have come from by your grace and where we are going by your grace. Help us to align our lives consistently with that end. We plead with you tonight, especially for the officers of your church, that they would have the attitude to say that we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty, and never to be harsh and offend and proud and always be willing to forgive and receive and to be faithful and for all of us in our various callings to find in the gospel, in the grace of Christ, the power for thankful obedience. We pray in His name alone. Amen.